0: Hi, this is Tiffany Bovo. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Emily Chang today. She is the anchor and executive producer of Bloomberg Technology, a daily TV show focused on global tech and Bloomberg Studio 1.0, where she regular, regularly speaks to top executives, investors, and entrepreneurs. Chang is the author of The Brotopia. Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley, which investigates and examines sexism and gender inequality in the tech industry. She's won five Emmy Awards while reporting for KNSD in San Diego, was a finalist this year at the Shorty Awards for Best Journalist, and I'm super thrilled to have her here. But there's one fun fact I love. Uh, not many people can say, but Emily has played herself in six cameo appearances on the HBO hit show Silicon Valley. So, welcome Emily to the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, I don't know how many people can actually say they've played themselves on television <laughs> in our world. I think that's so much fun. Like, you know, I, I think it I'm just going to have to ask and start there. Like, how, how fun was that?
1: Oh, it's so I fun, it. and you know, so look, fun. I I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to work across most of the characters and they're all so talented so hilarious so funny off the set as well as on it so it's been a joy
0: well what's funny is people are like oh do you watch that show and I'm I'm always like hey you know I live and work in it I don't know I I don't know how you know I tried to watch a couple of them and while it was you know fun parody on the whole thing like sometimes it was so reality that you kind of go oh I got to watch something else.
1: I I will say, I agree that they get it pretty close to right. And so sometimes it is almost too real. And sometimes real life is even more bizarre than fiction in Silicon Valley.
0: Yes. So true. Well, we will jump into that in a second, but before we do that, I want to start out with something I call bullish and bearish. It's nothing too painful. Just a couple of quick questions. And You know, I I don't think I have to explain to you, you know, the uh, sort of anchor of Bloomberg Tech, the difference between bullish and bearish, but bullish is you're for it, bearish is you're against it. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So the first one is bullish or bearish for robot reporters, since you were an international reporter in Beijing, right? While at CNN, now they've had someone in China do it.
1: I have to say bearish. I'd like to protect my job.
0: All right. Well, what do you think? What about on the journalistic side? Same thing?
1: You know, I do think AI is certainly not there yet in terms of news judgment. Maybe one day that'll work, but right now, bearish.
0: Okay. I'll take that. I'll take that. Mm -hmm. All right. The next one is changing culture is possible. Bullish or bearish? Bullish. Good. I knew you'd say that, I'm but optimist. you know, i me too. All right. And the third one is a little more fun and it will, you know, sort of lead into the connection of you and I, but the next one is Hawaii is the best place to grow up. Bullish, bullish, bullish. I agree. So a little <laughs> fun tidbit fact. Uh, Emily and I were born in the same place, just a mountain between us. We went to the same high school and graduated from the same high school, but I think Emily, you, uh, were born the year I was a freshman so it was a long time after I graduated. <laughs> However well we Aloha. Still, <laughs> Aloha, we still hold the buff and blue strong. So you know w- with with that uh, you know I'd, I'd love to you know start by um, you know talking about what you think around brotopia. It's been out now a little more than a year, right? aren't you going? a little past a year at this point, year and a half.
1: Going on a year and a half. The paperback came out uh, a year after the original publication with an updated afterward. I mean, the news cycle on this topic was moving so quickly that there was just so much new to write even a year later. And I started the book before, the Me Too movement, before President Trump was elected, yeah, before scary. we were in the world that we are in today. And this conversation about women and diversity was really part of a, a, a national conversation. And so I honestly had no idea the wave I was getting on, but the topic has had incredible momentum. And yes, there's a uh, it, you know, it, it can be very depressing and disheartening at times to discuss these issues. But as I said earlier, I do believe that people can change. I believe companies can change. And I believe culture can change if there's the will.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think there's a few things. I mean, you know, I'd love to unpack sort of how you found yourself in the middle of this conversation. I'm going to guess it was just, you know, a little bit over time. I'm making a huge assumption here. But you have these incredible, fascinating conversations with all kinds of people across the tech industry in Silicon Valley, and you found yourself sort of at the center of this. And I think also being a woman and being a reporter on this particular, you know, topic in this particular industry, you know, all of those things, I think it must've given you a really interesting perspective that then led you to say, I think I want to put this down on paper.
1: Yeah. So when I launched my show, Bloomberg Technology, you know, I was just focused on trying to convince people to sit in the chair across from me. People didn't know, uh, didn't necessarily have the the desire to go on live television in Silicon Valley. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of convincing them that this was worth it. And then a few years into it, I I realized that most of the people who were often sitting in that chair were men, and that these men were not talking about how few women there were at the top of Silicon Valley and people would sort of whisper about it. Women would sort of complain, but nobody wanted to talk about it under the bright lights. And yet there was just so much emotion. um, And I I felt a lot of pent up anger and, and, and resentment among, you know, some of these incredibly talented women and minorities, um, who just weren't getting promoted or um, weren't getting that CEO job. And so I started asking the mostly men who were sitting across from me, the CEOs and investors and entrepreneurs, well, why don't you think women uh, are, are succeeding in Silicon Valley? Why aren't they getting these jobs? And you know, they would give me a, a sort of politically correct answer And then at the end of 2015, I interviewed a very prominent venture capitalist, Michael Moritz. They had no women partners in their firm at the time in the United States. And he said, oh, well, we're looking hard, but what we're not prepared to do is to lower our standards. And that just lit a fire under me and under a lot of people who were angered by what he had said. And it was sort of the spark that lit the fire that got me to ultimately write a book about it.
0: Well I can't even I you know and and I know that uh you know I've heard you say that before and and you can go see the clip online but uh, you know for those listening you know what what was your response I mean I can't even imagine sitting across from someone and having them say that to you like right to your face this wasn't a oh I said it behind her back or you know in the lunchroom or at the water cooler this is I said it right to your face I Well he initially
1: blamed it on the pipeline there's not enough women studying stem and this coming from an investor who himself didn't study science or technology but in fact was you know a history and, and, and literature major and yet had succeeded greatly and made bets on companies like google and yahoo that made him and a lot of people billions and billions of dollars uh and so i pushed back on that and i said is it a pipeline problem or are you not looking hard enough? And he said, Oh, we're looking very hard, but what we're not prepared to do is to lower our standards. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, I was sitting there in silent shock. Uh, Did he really just say that? Did he really just say that on international television? Yes, he did. And I didn't expect the reaction be so fierce. I mean, the next day it was, you know, the headline in Vanity Fair. Here's news to all you smart, talented young women out there who want a job in tech. Apparently you don't exist. And everywhere I went for the next few months, people wanted to talk about what he had said. And I had had a couple of opportunities to um, have a conversation with him afterwards about that very remark. And he pretty much doubled down on what he had said originally. And so there was this, I felt, sense of ignorance and almost a stubbornness to admit that people aren't looking hard enough. Who's creating the standards? What are the standards? And um, to say that there's no talented women in technology or that in, in 44 years, this firm couldn't find a single woman who met their very high standards that's just, I call BS.
0: Yeah, and, and I, what's interesting there is if you almost fast forward and you say, let's just hypothetically say someone said that today. I almost don't think someone would because you know, in a lot of what you just said, being tone deaf to the fact that you gave them an opportunity to sort of not backtrack, right, but maybe qualify or clarify or whatever the words might, the right word might be. That he doubled down, like to just be completely tone deaf to how ridiculous that sounded, and it isn't just women, right? It could be, it, it's just anybody who doesn't quote unquote look like us, whoever's saying it, right? Absolutely. And so, because I think it's it's minorities, it's it's all kinds of diversity, not just men and women. And so, um, I, I I find that I, I, at least I hope that I have definitely seen a shift in the tone. Um, around not being completely deaf to something like that statement, that having a little bit more empathy to how that might sound. Even if you feel that way, to, to just say something like, you know what, we have, I, I have always believed it's a pipeline problem. But, you know, after you asked me the last time, I actually went to my team and asked. And I, you know what I'm saying? Like, that could have been a fair enough response. Right. But it was like, nope. <laughs> I'm going to double down. And so I, you know, I guess the question a year and a half later um, and I guess how long ago has it been since that interview, two and a half or well, three so years? It's
1: been actually almost four years because yep. that was at the end of 2015. I think I started writing the book about a year later and, you know, here we are almost at the end of 2019 and, and, a, and a lot has happened since then. And Sequoia, by the way, the, the, the firm where he works has hired one woman partner. Since, of course, I think all of these firms that are hiring their one woman uh, can hire many more, but it is a step in the right direction.
0: Well, I think, you know, diversity is okay. Now you have the one woman, uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, you give them a seat at the table, (laughs) uh, which then means, you know, you'll sort of, you know, they'll say something at a board meeting or whatever. But it's actually you know, hearing them and listening to them that, that I think is the real difference. Um, there was a stat out the other day that I think in the um, Global 500, it was either the Global 500 or the, it might have been the Global 500, that now finally every board on that Global 500 has at least one woman on the board. And, uh, you know, the the last firm finally hired, hired somebody. And, and I sort of went back and went, well, you know, what would be more interesting is the fact that there's really only seven female CEOs in fortune 500 companies. I think at this point, it's like less than 10, it's not very many. Right. And that number kind of goes up and down as the handful of women, uh, leave or change positions. Uh, you know, someone like a Meg Whitman who, you know, left HP is doing something else. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So you've got them doing other things, but uh, I think that it it has everything to do um, with giving just uh, inclus- inclusivity around points of view. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is, is McKinsey every year comes out with a report on the progress of women in the workforce. And unfortunately, in their latest report, they said that progress has stalled. And even though we're talking about this, we're not seeing substantial movement in the actual jobs, especially at the highest levels. And what companies are making the mistake in doing is that they're hiring their one woman and they think they're done. And these women, which McKinsey refers to as the onlys, feel a lot of pressure, feel isolated, feel a sort of a lack of of camaraderie with their colleagues. And that doesn't necessarily set them up for success. In order for them to better succeed, you've got to have more than one woman on the board, two, three, um, and then we're talking. Then they feel like they can speak up. They feel like they can share their opinions without being um, you know, interrupted or, or mansplained. Um, but it can be very difficult to, even if you have that, position on the executive team or position on the board to feel like you have a voice and that you can speak up when you want to speak up. And when you have something to say, if there's nobody else on that board or that executive team that looks like you.
0: And I think you just nailed it, right? You kind of, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And so I think that, um, there's a lot to be said for that. And, and you know, it's interesting because, you know, you and I get the opportunity to speak to a lot of people and, and this happens to be sort of a topic that, uh, you know, I, I tend to talk about often um, because at events, if I'm speaking, I, I may be the only woman on stage or, you know, uh, I'm in an article or I'm doing something, you know, and you start to notice it. Um, and, and I, I feel like sometimes, you know, if I post something, let's just say up on LinkedIn and I get all these comments about, you know, whatever I've said, it's interesting to watch the banter between men, (laughs) like someone will go, Oh, this is what are you talking about? Like, and they'll start to fight like between each other, you know, and this, this definite divide that there's always a reason why that's not the case. Oh, it's a pipeline problem or it's, well, they're not in the workforce because they're raising a family or they were out of the workforce for 15 years and they decided to come back, whatever it might be. Right. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it, it also has a lot to do. And I'd love your opinion on this Is sort of women supporting women, because I think this is an area that, Um, I still struggle with seeing that really happening in action.
1: You know, I think it's, everybody has their own personal experience. I've certainly seen a lot more of it and experienced a lot more of it in my own uh, career than, uh, you know, perhaps has existed historically. I, you know, for example, the, the 34 women who, our venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who came together to form a nonprofit called All Raise to get more women entrepreneurs funded and more women investors into the investing community. These are all women who compete with each other for deals. They all work at different firms and yet they have a common call to action. And they came together to make a change. And, you know, they were recently on the cover of Forbes, Forbes magazine, which is real estate normally reserved for male billionaires. And, I truly admire that. And I know that they've been incredibly active um, since they started the organization and they've helped raise awareness and they've helped give each other courage, to be honest, to speak up. I mean, many of these women who I've followed, you know, since I've been doing this show for the last 10 years, you know, they didn't want to come on television. They were scared. They were nervous. They didn't necessarily um, have confidence in their opinions or think people wanted to hear what they had to say. And now they're out there. They're talking to the press. They are, You know, tweeting, they are, you know, sort of putting themselves out there in ways that, you know, they didn't necessarily do before because, you know, we do want to hear what they have to say. So I'm actually more optimistic about the amount of um, collaboration I've seen among women. Now, that said, we do need men to be part of this conversation. Nothing is going to change if we're just talking amongst ourselves. And so, you know, I admire and appreciate the men who, uh, do participate in those conversations or get on stage in the panel and take a swing at these questions. And, you know, I've sort of taken it upon myself, you know, when somebody says something slightly off, like, oh, well, you know, that's because women are taking a, a step back or taking care of families, you know, you can give them a little nudge and say, well, actually, the research shows <laughs> right. that, um, you know, women are. Leaving the tech community, but they're taking jobs in other fields. They're not leaving to take care of their families, um, and you can find these opportunities to sort of redirect in a way that's not necessarily a public dress down or humiliating to someone, but makes them think, "Oh yeah, okay," or maybe you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, you know, I have, I was on a call with an investor who was throwing this big event and um, you know, he, he said to me and all of these amazing other people are going to be helping me throw this event. And they were all men. And I said, well, you know, if you want to throw a great party, you should have some women who <laughs> are helping you out as well. And he said, oh yeah, 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 totally, totally. And it's just, you know, something small that makes someone stop and say, uh, oh, you know, or realize that, um, they'd overlooked that and can be a can lead to perhaps, and I, this is me being optimistic, a big change in behavior and approach. And I think it's on all of us to kind of do that, men and women.
0: And, and, and I couldn't agree more, right? And, I, and I'm equally optimistic. I think that uh, I have seen, uh, especially in the 25 years, literally, I've been in tech. Uh, you used to be the only female sales rep, you know, selling technology. Obviously, that's long since changed. Uh, But, you know, what's great is, is that the conversation is elevating even higher, right, getting going back to what we were talking about at the board level. And I know that there's been a number of of large companies that are really starting to during their quote unquote earnings calls. uh, So let's focus on publicly traded for a second on earnings calls will actually talk about this kind of thing, right? Like what's our social consciousness? What are we doing about environmental issues? Here's what we're doing about diversity and inclusion. And they're actually bringing it up, you know, on their earnings calls in some cases even playing down the earnings, right? Talking about these more important social issues. Do you think that that, that is a do you think that that will be well will continue? Do you think the, the, you know, quote unquote, the street will let that continue? I mean, what, what are your feelings on that?
1: Absolutely. I kind of think that in this day and age, some of these CEOs, they can't not take a position on some of these issues. And that is absolutely the trend. And if you look at, for example, a company like Apple, where Steve Jobs, uh, for all of the amazing things he did and the amazing products he created, uh, he didn't take on political and social issues, at least not publicly. And you see Tim Cook, you know, taking a stand when there is a mass shooting, taking a stand when the U.S. pulls out of uh, the the Paris Accord, you know, he, you know, taking a stand when it comes to individuals and their, their sexuality or their identity. And I think that's really important. It's not that it's an easy thing, to do, and of course, these companies are giant companies that are made up of all different kinds of people who believe in all different kinds of things and have all different kinds of views. But I, I, I do believe there is sort of a, a a moral obligation these days to, um, to 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 make a statement when 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 these kinds of things happen because. You know, these are we're talking about some of the biggest companies in the world. And these are the 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 biggest issues of our time. And it's important to hear leadership take a
0: position. Yeah, and I think if you you know, as a leader of a company, you know, people that are listening to this podcast, they may be an individual contributor who's like, look, you know, I just I want to do the best job I can, and you know, I'm just starting out my career, and it doesn't matter male or female. Um, you know, or or however you identify, like, I want to see what I want to be. So that's sort of one big bucket, right? As you start to move up, it's like, you have the ability to really shape culture and, and almost to like what you say, where somebody says something in a meeting you feel is a little off from the culture or, you know, the feeling of the, that the company is trying to do from a values perspective that you have to take that short opportunity to just maybe reframe the question or give that person an opportunity to clarify what they mean as not to double right. down, not to double down
1: it so for you to, let's say, you know, someone gets interrupted to just speak up and say, Oh, I just can, I just want to finish hearing what she or he has to say, or maybe it's, you know, let's give so-and-so an opportunity to take on that project and see what happens. And it's so much easier for uh, someone who, is a bystander or an observer to do that than for the so-called victim or the person who just got interrupted to do that. And that is a way that you can gently redirect and reset a conversation where some of those things might be happening.
0: Absolutely. And, and that goes to this whole diversity of potentially thought, you know, using that diversity of thought as an, as a concept as well, that you have introverts and extroverts and people who speak in meetings and maybe, you know, contemplate more in meetings versus just outwardly coming out and saying, you know, nope, I, you know, very quickly, I make this decision where other leaders like, you know, I'm going to think about that. And so I, because I'm not saying something right back, it doesn't mean I don't appreciate what you're saying or agree with what you're saying. It's just my process is I'm going to mull it over a little bit. Right. And so different sort of leadership styles. And then as you get really, you know, high into the organization and you actually have the ability to start to set the tone, I think that's where this conversation we were having about, you know, uh, executives, understanding what is the sort of the values of the brand and the company and what they stand for and what kind of culture that they want to build. And so with all the, with all the companies you get the opportunity to speak with, as well as those that you mentioned in the book and and the conversations you have, you know, what would you give as pieces of advice for people that are listening, that are, that are leaders that are saying, you know, I'm still trying to find my own way through this. So you just gave one, right? We're inviting other people to speak up in a conversation and then really hearing and listening and actioning and giving them opportunity is one way. Is there anything else you would say?
1: So I think this is something that anybody can do on their individual teams if they're managing a team, um, a small team or a larger organization. When you're building your team, look for people who don't look like you because that is the best way to ensure that diversity of thought and to ensure that you've got a diversity of views and obviously the reason you want people with different views around your table is so you don't have blind spots so you don't make mistakes so you're thinking about all different kinds of customers all different kinds of use cases and if you have people on a team who all think the same way maybe they're all the same gender or they're all white you know you can be sure that you will make mistakes you will miss things. And so even if you're not the CEO, even if you're just managing a small team, that is something that you can do on a, on a much smaller scale. You know, of course, at the larger scale, when you're talking about interviewing and bringing new people into a company, you know, the interview process needs to be standardized, ask people the same set of questions, because if somebody comes in and they don't look the part, you're going to ask them tougher questions than somebody who comes in and looks the part, like, you know, say it's a 22-year-old computer science student uh, from Stanford wearing a hoodie, you know, that person, that, you know, generally a guy, uh, you're going to ask that person easier question than someone who comes in with a non-traditional background for the same job. Um, And by standardizing those kinds of processes, you can give your employees and your people in your organization the tools to combat their own bias. You know, we can't expect that people are going to be completely unbiased. We're all biased. We all come to the plate with our own sort of perceptions and experiences that inform how we interpret the world. But if you give people the tools to combat their bias, then you can you can, you can can at least try to take that bias out of the process. And the same, same thing goes for, you know, retaining and advancing people in your organization. You know, we talk a lot about hiring. We don't talk enough about just keeping the women and minorities you have at the table and making them feel valued. I mean, there's so much to be said for just listening and treating people with respect and treating them like human beings. You know, people want to be heard. And, you know, I know it can be tough for managers to, you know, always be listening and, 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 and yet it is so important and so vital for uh, the people who work, let's say under you, um, your direct reports to, to feel valued and, and feel as if they're, they're being heard. Um, and just making sure that people feel included in the conversation, feel like they can speak up and that you're giving everyone appropriate opportunities to advance and grow and learn. Um, because that's, that, that means they'll be the most productive that they can be. Um, and you ultimately want them to be themselves. And so creating an environment can be their full selves, can bring their full selves to work, that's when you're going to get the most creative and productive results.
0: Well, this has been fantastic. You know, I, I uh, have been a fan of your work before we got the opportunity to meet for all kinds of reasons. But, you know, I, I thought Protopia was just a great uh, conversation starter, if nothing else. So if you have those of you listeners who have not read the book, I highly recommend you read it, maybe even to get your team to read it. Uh, so that you can really understand sort of the subtleties behind sort of the things that Emily's been speaking about today. And, uh, you know, I'd like, like to just wrap up with one last question or two actually, but one is, uh, you know, is there something that knowing what you know now that you would have put in Brotopia that you didn't? I know that you've just sort of refreshed oh. because of the paperback, but is there anything you would put in that you, that you did? That's tough.
1: You know there, this book could have been about so many things, you know, I, I touch on racism. I touch on, you know, class and uh, you know, other kinds of identity, but the book really is about gender and focuses on women. I think racism is a whole nother book. Ageism is totally underreported and it could be a whole nother book. Um, and so you know, I, I want someone else to take on those topics because they need to be poked and prodded and, and, and explored. And, you know, I think the Me Too movement stands for a lot of things, um, but there's still, you know, plenty of people who aren't able to reach their full potential in this world because of, of how it is set up. And so, um, You know, I would love to continue to see progress. And I believe that progress can happen, as I said earlier, if there's a will.
0: Absolutely. All right. And so the last question uh, before we wrap up is if you could have dinner, a meal with anybody, dead or alive, or multiple people, who would it be?
1: Oh, my goodness. That's a tough one. Ooh. Michelle Obama.
0: All right. Fair enough. I think she'd be... (laughs) I think you she'd be funny. You probably get that one a lot. <laughs> uh, I don't. You know, I get all kinds of, I get I get philosophers and artists and I get, I've get. i gotten rock and roll stars. I've gotten all kinds of things. So it's actually across the board. And because I don't prep that I'm going to ask it, it is really the first thing that comes to your mind. And so you'd be surprised what comes up. Sometimes it's family. You know, some people will say.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I the other person I'd say is my dad who passed away now like 15 years ago, you know, before I became a reporter, certainly before I wrote a book, before I had children. And I would love to tell them about my life and tell them about my kids and my husband. Um, So I suppose if I really could have dinner with anyone, that's who I'd have dinner
0: with. All right. So we'll do have passed your dad and alive. (laughs) We'll go with Michelle Obama. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank Sounds you like so much dinner. Emily for joining me today <laughs> on the What's Next podcast. It really it really has been a pleasure. Uh I know I've been trying to get you on for a while so I'm glad that we finally were able to make this happen. I I wanted you to be able to tell tell your story as well, you know, to just I now you're my second Hawaii uh you know sort of kamaaina uh, to join the podcast with me. The first one was Guy Kawasaki. So, you know, you're in a small group of us um, that get to do this every day. So I appreciate you and what you do. And thank you for um, being such a great steward of telling the story uh, in Silicon Valley and, and beyond on everything that's going on around around gender and gender well, equality. Well, thank you
1: for ha- having me and thank you for shining light on on these issues. You're an important part of this conversation as well. And I know you're out there Uh, trying to make change in your own way too. So good luck and let's do it.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Emily. Thanks a lot for joining us today on the What's Next podcast. That was so much fun talking to Emily Chang from Bloomberg Technology today about her book, Brotopia. I hope you took away some really great little nuggets of small things you can do every day to make sure that you not only create a diverse working environment, but one that is inclusive, that listens to people, From different opinions, with different experiences, different age groups, et cetera, to make sure that you are bringing not only your employees' full self to work, but your own. It's our responsibility as leaders to make sure, and as peers and as business owners, to make sure that those around us feel like they're heard, they're listened to, and that they've got an opportunity to share their story. So, with that, I hope you continue to follow me on What's Next podcast. Please subscribe, leave some feedback, share with your friends. I appreciate you spending this time with me today. Have a great rest of your day.